our scripture lesson for this day. All four of the gospel writers tell us what happened on that Easter a long time ago. They have some different perspectives and uh, tell the story a little differently. But we're going to look at Luke's version of the story today, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. And I would ask you to stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel. Luke 24, beginning with verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and other, the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. It seems like a lifetime ago or a long time ago when we began our Lenten journey at Noonan First United Methodist Church this year. And in traditional worship, we focused on gifts of the dark wood. And that title, that emphasis came from a writer named Eric Elms. And we spent some time every week talking about some unlikely gifts that are to be found in the dark wood, an unlikely place. We talked about the gift of temptation and the gift of uncertainty the gift of emptiness, the gift of getting lost, the gift of being thunderstruck. And last week we looked at the gift of being misfits. The book is incredible. I would commend it to you for your own reading sometime, Gifts of the Dark Wood. A lot there about how we make our way through the dark wood, how we learn there, the things, the gifts that are available to us. And there's a reminder in that book that We're not all saints, but we're all seekers, we're all searchers, and at times in our life we all struggle with what it means to follow Christ and what it means to engage the difficult spots in this life. I would recommend the book to you, but now the time has come for us to emerge from the dark wood. Not that we won't go back and and pick up on those gifts from time to time, But it's time to emerge from the dark wood. It's Easter Day. We read the glorious story from Luke's gospel about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And I want us to spend some time thinking about that in a couple of different ways. And let's begin with an expression that I heard growing up a billion times or more. (laughs) Son, you know better than that. (laughs) Sometimes I did know better, and sometimes I was simply trying to get away with something. 
There are other times, though, when I really didn't know any better. You know better than that. It's in the book of expressions that every parent is required to read. There are about a hundred or so expressions, and there are things you have to say to your children. And another expression that occupies a prominent place in the book is quit running with that stick, that bottle, that whatever, because if you fall, you might put your eye out. You know, you could finish that sentence. And if you watch that movie, The Christmas Story, that we have watched a thousand times or more. You know, there's a line in that movie too. You can't have the BB gun. You might put your eye out. But I remember, I do remember, like it was yesterday, the day that I caused my parents to use both of those expressions in one day. You know better than that. You might put your eye out. I was in the kitchen of the house that I grew up in. I had a piece of string I needed to cut in two, and I would recommend not using a potato peeler to do that. And I did poke myself in the eye. And I squealed and my folks came running and we went to the emergency room. And when the doctor had assured them that my eye had suffered no permanent damage, we were on the way home. And they employed both of those expressions that day. The unexpected or not unexpected words of rebuke came, of course. First of all, why were you trying to cut a string with a potato peeler instead of some of those scissors with the round ends like kids are supposed to play with? And then you could have put your eye out. You know better than that. And I did know better than that. Ignorance was not an excuse. It's not an acceptable defense in the courtroom, is it? Ignorance, it just doesn't, doesn't fly, doesn't work. I knew better than that. But it's not a parent-child kind of thing only. It applies to every area of our life. And I suppose we all have stories, even as adults, about times when maybe we didn't know better than that or we knew better but did it anyway. Knowing better doesn't always guarantee doing better. You remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, I do not understand my own actions for I don't do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. And we've all been there when we've done things that we know better. We know it's not the best thing to do. Sometimes we choose a lesser road when the the good road is there before us. We know the proper way. We choose the easy way. We know the right way. We, We choose the wrong way. We know the helpful way, but some days we choose the hurtful way and we, we bring pain and suffering to others. We know the encouraging way, but sometimes we take the discouraging way because, let's face it, sometimes it's just a lot of fun to be on the cold water committee and pour cold water on somebody else's idea. We get caught up in that kind of thing. Knowing better does not guarantee doing better, but it's a critically important first step. You know better than that. When that expression is hurled at us in the form of an accusation, we become defensive. And we don't like those accusations. And like children, we often plead ignorance. No, I really don't know any better than that. Never an acceptable excuse. Long time ago, on a Friday, Jesus was hanging on a cross between two thieves, probably two zealots, two revolutionaries who had stolen to fund their revolution and were tempted to overthrow Rome and were paying the ultimate price for it. So Jesus was hanging there. And among the phrases that he spoke that day were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In other words, They don't know any better. 
many folk today act like Good Friday is the last page in the book. They, they live that way with no hope, with a sense of despair, with a sense of discouragement. But we know better than that, don't we? Good Friday is not the end of the book. It's the end of a chapter. It's an important chapter. We need to reread that chapter often. But the book doesn't end there. And that's why we're here today. Eugene Peterson, who did the translation of Scripture, the message a few years back, well, really a couple of decades ago, he died, I think, in this past year. But I love the way he tells that Easter story. Let me give you just a brief glimpse of that, and then we'll, we'll move on. He said, at the crack of dawn on Sunday, the women came to the tomb carrying the burial spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled back from the tomb. You know the story. They walked in. But once inside, they could not find the body of Master Jesus. They were puzzled, wondering what to make of this. Then, out of nowhere, it seemed two men appeared. And they said, why are you looking for the living in a cemetery? He's not here. He's risen like he said that he would. He's not here, raised up. Remember how he told you when you were back in Galilee that he had to be handed over to sinners, be killed on a cross, and in three days rise up, and and they started to remember what he had said. They left the tomb and broke the news of all this to the eleven and the rest. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, all the women with them kept telling these things to the apostles. But the apostles would not believe the women to their detriment. They thought they were making it all up. So Peter jumps to his feet. Peter, always the impulsive one, even after all he's been through, the denial, the whole picture, suit down, looked in, saw a few grave clothes, and he walked away. Just left it right there. Later in the 24th chapter of Luke, Jesus appears to some of his followers and the doubt begins to be erased and it begins to fade and they begin to believe what's really happened. There's a story told about a group of chess players that used to gather in a small town in Pennsylvania every year and indulge in their favorite game. But as the years went by, death took its toll and some of these guys moved away and the the group sort of disbanded. There was a Frenchman in that group, and he decided one day to go back to that place, back to that room, back to that building where they used to meet and play chess. And he found his way back to that very room, and he was reminiscent. And the room had been redecorated a little bit, and above the fireplace was a picture of this otherworldly, evil-looking, god-like creature, just a god-little-g-like creature, just something scary-looking. And this creature was staring down over a chessboard. And the caption under the picture read, checkmated. And the guy stood there for the longest time and he looked at that chessboard. And then just impulsively, he sort of screamed out, it's a lie. It's a lie. The king and the knight have another move. Our Lord Jesus Christ had encountered face to face. The principalities and powers of darkness and of evil, of sin and death, they had nailed into a cross, suspended in between heaven and earth for all to see until he breathed his last. They removed his body from the cross, wrapped it in cloths, and placed it in a stone-cold tomb, sealed it with a large round stone. Try to 
take a mental picture of all that if you can. Just try to envision what was going, what was going on in the tomb, the heavy stone sealing off the entrance and or the exit from the tomb. And underneath all of that picture, one single word, checkmated. Checkmate, a chess term that means the king is vulnerable and has nowhere else to turn and the game is over. Yet as people who are living after the resurrection, and as people who are living because of the resurrection, we know better than that. Our God and his Christ have another move. He has risen. Alleluia. Shortly after Neil Armstrong's original moonwalk, then President Richard Nixon phoned him and said, this is the greatest event in human history. But we know better than that, don't we? We know that our Redeemer lives. What joy the blessed assurance gives. He lives, he lives. Who once was dead, he lives our everlasting head. That, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is the single most important event in all of human, in all of divine history. One of the traditions I've read of the Cathedral of Winchester is the story of how the news of the Battle of Waterloo was first received. Came by a sailing ship to the coast of England and was wigwagged by signal flag to London. When the message reached Winchester, the signaler on top of the cathedral began to spell out the message W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N-D-E-F-E-A-T-E-D, Wellington defeated. And there was a fog that came down about that time. It seemed to engulf the whole country. And the whole country was in despair because that's all they had seen. Wellington defeated. But when the fog began to lift and the signaler was still there and the rest of what the signaler said or signaled was T-H-E-E-N-E-M-Y. Wellington defeated the enemy and there was a thrilling sense of joy and it raced across the whole land and it lifted all of the hearts of all the people. Everything had changed that quickly because they had gotten the whole story. So the heavy gloom of Calvary fled before the triumph of Christ's resurrection. The disaster of the cross had been complete. It had been unexpected by most people, something this awful. They did not see it coming. It could have only been reversed by an event as momentous as a resurrection. As hard as that is for us to get our heads and our hearts around. Yet so many of God's people, some in our time, some of us maybe live in this cloud of gloom, in this fog, and we act as if we don't believe. And we've not heard the whole story. The thick, Air, the fog that still hangs in the air, like the disaster of the cross for many folks has never been reversed. But we're here to say that we know better than that. We know better than that. Could an outside observer watching us here or in the local churches where many of you might worship, could they look at us and understand 
Sunday to Sunday, could they get the picture that we serve a risen Savior and he's in the world today? Could they tell it by our expressions? Could they sense it in our joy? Could they tell it by our approach to life? I fear that at times the amazement that accompanies resurrection, that sense of amazement, is missing from some of our gatherings. And we know better than that. The poet, and I'm speaking specifically of one of my favorite contemporary poets, Anne Weems, was writing about that amazement. She said, the people who heard Jesus were repeatedly amazed. Are we so sophisticated today that we are immune to that sense of amazement? Can we know that he was crucified, goodness and compassion and love nailed on a tree? And go about our business of preparing Easter dinner? Can we know that he arose from the dead and walked the earth and ate and spoke with his followers? And sit unamazed in the pew or in our chairs as though we cannot hear the word of God. O God of Jesus the Christ, the amazing thing is the lack of our amazement in the face of such an amazing event. We know better than that. How often do we live our Monday through Saturday lives as if the face of God has somehow been turned away from us? James W. Moore, and some of you have read some of his stuff, maybe used it in Sunday school or in your devotional readings. He wrote a little book, years ago called When Grief Breaks Your Heart. And if you are struggling with that, I would recommend the book. And in that book, there's a story. and I would call it a very touching account. It touched me, and and you can decide. Maybe you've heard the story about a young man whose wife had died and left the young man with a small child, a small son. And after returning from the cemetery, they went to bed as soon as possible because the guy said, I just can't take it. I can't handle anything else. I've got to just go to bed. And he lay there in the darkness, brokenhearted and grief-stricken, numb with sorrow. And the little boy was in a bed not far from, from the father's bed. And then he broke the silence, the little boy did, with a heart-wrenching kind of question. Daddy, where's mommy? And the father tried to get the boy to go to sleep. But the questions kept coming from him, as they do from children's minds sometimes, when they see and experience things that we sometimes can't get our hearts around. And after a while, the father got up and walked over and picked the boy up and brought him to bed with him. But the child was still disturbed and restless. And occasionally he'd ask one of those probing questions that just broke the father's heart. Finally, the boy reached out in the darkness and he placed his hand on his father's face asking, Daddy, is your face toward me? And he was assured by his father, by his words and his touch, that his face was indeed turned toward him. And the little boy said, if your face is turned toward me, I think I can sleep. And a little while he was quiet. And the father lay there in the darkness And in childlike faith, he lifted up his heart in prayer to his Father in heaven. And he prayed something like this, Oh God, the way is dark. And I don't see a way through right now. But if your face is toward me, I think I can make it. And the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead, God turned God's face toward us for all time. Yet there are times when we still carry on like that is not the truth. And we know better than that. He has risen. We know better than that. Our outlook too frequently is that this whole wide world is on a slippery slope and they're headed for a pit of destruction and there's nothing we can do about it. We know better than that. The war was won at Calvary. There are battles still raging. And we all know that. But we don't fight the fight alone. He has risen. He is Lord. Luke said that when the women who had come to the cemetery early on that first Easter told the apostles later what they had seen and heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it says in the text, the apostles did not believe them. And it seemed to them like an idle tale. And they did not believe them. We've gathered here today in this holy place to say, We know better than that. Where do we go from here as we come out of the dark wood? Back into a world full of heartbreak and pain and struggle and confusion. Knowing that he lives. And that the heartache and the pain and the struggle and confusion don't have the final word. We know better than that. So let's act like it. Amen.